Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus is most clearly revealed. Our sermon this week will be a continuation in our series in the book of Esther. Uh, We'll be specifically in uh, Esther chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, 2. But first, please pray with me. Father, we just ask for you to be present this morning. We ask that you would... Um, by your spirit, illuminate scripture to us so that we would better know you, that we would glorify you in all that we do, that we would walk out of here with changed uh, hearts, hearts that desire to magnify you in in all that we do. And so I pray that you would uh, speak through Dawes this morning. Pray that we would be receptive and Father, that you would be magnified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hear from the word of the Lord, Esther 7, 1 through 8, 2. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you if you uh, would like. And we also, the words should be on the screen behind me. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for, your, for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told, had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. 
Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sojourn, and welcome again to everyone joining us online. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's very good, as always, to be with you on the Lord's Day. Today, we continue our seven-week series through the book of Esther, uh, and we have been delving into what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. Now, the events of, of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They are, they are living at the mercy of the, of the Persian Empire, a foreign government. And God has called his people to seek the welfare of this city, to submit, honor, and serve, and pray for this foreign empire. But, as we have seen over the past few weeks, Mordecai and Esther have had to learn they, they didn't just know what to do. They've had to learn to do that faithfully. At first, we, we see them hiding their Jewish identity and, and scheming for power and influence. But now, a man named Haman has risen to power and convinced the king to permit the genocide of all the Jewish people. And this incident forces Mordecai and Esther out of hiding, out of the dark into the light. And at this point, they have both gone public with their faith. In response, Esther resolves to petition the king on behalf of her people. And so she holds a feast for the king and for Haman. And the king agrees to grant Esther her request. He says, if you remember, he asks her, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. But as we saw a few weeks ago, Esther mysteriously delays making her request. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a second feast. And our passage today tells us the story of that second feast. Before we, before we dive into Esther 7, I think it would be good for us to go back in time just a little bit, just to understand some of the context surrounding the events recorded here. As we've, as we've mentioned a number of times now, Mordecai was a Benjamite. He was a Jew, an Israelite, from the tribe of Benjamin. And Haman was an Agagite, a Gentile descendant of Agag, Agag was king of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites had a long history of opposing the Jewish people and their God. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of Israel are traveling through the desert, having just been delivered from captivity in Egypt. And Deuteronomy 25 tells us that they were tired and thirsty, and some of them were beginning to lag behind. So the Amalekites come and attack the people of Israel from the rear. They, they, the, they slaughter the weakest of the travelers. So likely the, the sick and the elderly and those families with small children. So the Lord says to Moses, he says this in Exodus 17, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. It's a very important promise to remember. God is making a promise to his people of something that he's going to do. 
From there, we can jump ahead to the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 15, where King Saul is commissioned to blot out the memory of Amalek. King Saul is charged by God to blot out the Amalekites. But Saul refuses to do it. While he completely annihilates the Amalekites, he spares King Agag. So what does this have to do with the book of Esther? Well, the God of Israel has promised to destroy the Amalekites, the house of Agag, the house from which Haman is a descendant. So if King Saul had blotted out the Amalekites as he was commanded, there would have been no Haman to ever threaten the Jews. And what's more, interestingly, King Saul was a Benjamite, just like Mordecai. So as we read through Esther, it's really important for us to kind of hear this, to hear this ancient conflict going on in the background. King Agag is kind of like Haman, and Saul is kind of like Mordecai. It's once again the Benjamites versus the Amalekites. And we all, as attentive readers, should be wondering, is this conflict going to reach a resolution? Will the Amalekites continue to plague the Jewish people or will they be blotted out once and for all? Is God going to keep his promise to Joshua and to Israel? Let's read from Esther chapter seven, verse two. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, this is the second time he's saying this, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. So let's, let's pause here just for a moment. Esther's answer implies that her own life is in danger. It's very odd, isn't it? It's kind, of, it's kind of slippery. It's clever and a little bit crafty. She appeals to the king in a way that he can't ignore. She essentially says, King, someone has been bold enough to threaten the life of the queen of Persia. Keep in mind at this point, Haman still has no idea that Esther's a Jew. He has no idea. Up until this point, Esther was the queen from nowhere. By all appearances, she held no factional loyalties. And perhaps Ahasuerus liked that about her. After all, he's, as we read in chapter 8, he is, he's governing 127 provinces, which was a huge empire. And so... The king needed a queen who could properly represent the entire kingdom. But now Esther is going to reveal her loyalties. She, she is going to reveal that she belongs to a particular ethnic group. And in doing so, she has to be very, very careful with her words. Verse four. For we have been sold... I and my people, very important, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. 
If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, the wicked Haman. Now at first reading, maybe even the way I'm reading it right now, it's a little puzzling. Esther tells the king that if the Jews were merely being enslaved, if they were merely being enslaved, she wouldn't even bring it up. She wouldn't even bring it up. The suffering of the Jews is nothing to be compared with your personal losses, king. What is she doing? <laughs> Esther, Esther is flattering the king, but she is also making a carefully crafted argument. She seems to be implying that the king is being cheated. Back in chapter 3, Haman offered the king 10,000 talents of silver in exchange for permission to annihilate the Jews. And some historians have suggested that the Jewish people would have been worth far more than 10,000 talents of silver had the king just chosen to sell them as slaves. So if that's true, then Esther's argument here, her way about this, is very shrewd. She's essentially saying, listen, if you were to sell the Jews into slavery, that I could understand. You would be paid a handsome price. But Haman wants to kill the Jews so that more of your money and power will be lost. So Haman must have some undisclosed motives. He's picking off his political rivals. Who knows, king, maybe you're next. Now remember, earlier in the day, the king had ordered Haman to parade Mordecai through the streets on the king's horse. And this was because of Mordecai's loyalty to the king. So the king may have already had his suspicions about Haman. He may have been recognizing that Haman's portrayal of the Jews as an unruly and unlawful people as he did was just untrue. He sees that Mordecai is the Jew he sees that Mordecai, the Jew, is a faithful subject, a faithful servant. He sees that Esther, the Jew, is a faithful queen. And that doesn't square with what Haman has said about the Jews. So he could be asking himself, could Haman be wrong about the Jews? And regardless of whether or not all that is true and accurate, we can see from how the king and Haman respond that Esther has, in any case, made a compelling case. Haman is now terrified, and the king is incensed. Verse 7, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, important, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Visualize this. Like, think about this place. Think about the people in it. Let me read it again. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. 
And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. There, there, is, there is a lot going on here that I think we may not realize just in an initial reading. Again, I, as we visualize that, I want us to consider the people and places and images in this verse. Back, back in chapter three, Haman wanted to annihilate the Jews because a Jew refused to bow before him, Mordecai. And now Haman is bowing and pleading before a Jew so as not to be annihilated. It's, it's quite a reversal from where we were a few weeks ago. We also see more of the, of the Genesis 3 theme that has been running through the book of Esther. So we think about the garden, and we think about a queen, and we think about a man attacking a queen. What are we thinking about? What's coming to mind? The king here is very much playing the role of Adam. He is walking into the garden, and when he returns, his Eve is seemingly being assaulted by a serpent. Esther is seemingly being assaulted by Haman. In a sense, this moment is redeeming both Adam and Eve. It's a scene that we remember. In Genesis 3, Eve is deceived by the serpent, but now Esther is proving herself more crafty and more wise than the serpent. In Genesis 3, Adam fails to guard and protect Eve, but now the king takes action to guard and protect his queen. And at the king's order, Haman is hanged on the very same gallows he had constructed for the execution of Mordecai. Just another reversal. Everything, as we're seeing it bit by bit, is getting turned back on its head. Haman is continuing to fall, as Mordecai is continuing to rise. In fact, at the end of our text today, the king takes his royal signet ring from Haman and he gives it to Mordecai so that Mordecai is now second in command. Yet another reversal. Mordecai's patience and faithfulness has proved to be fruitful. And in addition, the king gives Esther the house of Haman. And Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. And that is terribly significant given how we started out. The house of Agag, if you'll remember, remember, remember the people and where they're from. The house of Agag is being handed over to the tribe of Benjamin. <laughs> what Haman was over, Mordecai is now over. The Amalekites have finally been blotted out. God's promise to Joshua and to Israel has been kept. Now here's another thing worth noting. The Hebrew word translated as gallows in the ESV Bible is, is really just the Hebrew word for tree. Haman wants to hang Mordecai on a tree. But Haman is the one who is hanged upon the tree. And as we are told in Genesis 3 and Deuteronomy 21, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed was Christ 
who was hanged on a tree. Brothers and sisters, we serve a king who does not scheme for greater authority. We serve a king who's willing to set aside his authority for our sake. Perhaps you'll remember in John 13, when Jesus knew that the father had put everything in his hands, when he knew that he had everything and everything belonged to him, he responded in service to his brothers and friends. That is what our king does when he receives all authority. He doesn't look for more. He serves us. When we're unfaithful and disloyal, he doesn't lobby our execution. In fact, in an incredible reversal of its own, he faces the execution that belongs to us on our behalf. He redeems us from the curse by becoming one himself. Malcolm Geit, who is an English poet and Anglican priest, wrote a poem that I think is worth reading here. And I just want you to listen to these words and just picture this. Picture, picture the images that come to mind. The dark nails pierce him and the sky turns black. We watch him as he labors to draw breath. He takes our breath away to give it back. Return it to its birth through his slow death. We hear him struggle, breathing through the pain. Who once breathed out his spirit on the deep. Who formed us when he mixed the dust with rain and drew us into consciousness from sleep. His spirit and his life he breathes in all, mantles his world in his one atmosphere. And now he comes to breathe beneath the pall of our pollutants, draw our injured air to cleanse it and renew his final breath breathes and bears us through the gates of death. Christ dies upon a tree, but in the greatest reversal of all reversals, he triumphs in doing so. Christ dies upon a tree and thereby wins the victory. As Paul wrote in Colossians 2, it was actually on the cross that Jesus triumphed over his enemies. On the cross, Jesus dies like Haman, but miraculously he is raised like Mordecai. He is the one paraded in the streets on the father's horse as the most loyal one of us all. And just as all the Jews were saved by the courage and faithfulness of Esther, so we are saved by the courage and faithfulness of Jesus. And we share, we share in his victory. Our enemies have been defeated. Death has been swallowed up in life. The grave is no longer an end, but a beginning. And the darkness is giving way to light. Esther's world was no doubt spinning out of control. It's not at all really, I mean, in a spinning out of control way. It's not anything unlike our world. It's not anything like the last two years. 
and God was seemingly nowhere to be found. Remember, in this book of Esther, he is never mentioned. He's never spoken to. He's never prayed to. The righteous were suffering and the wicked were prospering. Like Psalm 73. And yet Esther resolved to do the difficult and yet faithful thing. We have in the book of Esther an opportunity to reflect deeply upon the interplay of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Our responsibility in light of God's being in control. Because the the book of Esther doesn't resolve the apparent conflict, but it does teach us how to live in that tension. And that is very important to us as 21st century Christians. As a general rule, as Ed Welsh would would say, I know something about you. I know that you worry. (laughs) As a general rule, most of us are living with a good deal of worry and anxiety. The world has always been a broken place. And if if you're familiar with the Enneagram at all, the most common type in in the United States is a six. We are a worried nation. But the internet and social media have exacerbated our anxiety. COVID-19 has exacerbated our anxiety. We can all identify with Esther to a degree. The world sometimes feels and seems like it is spinning out of control. And all of this, all that's happened over these last few years can lead us to question whether God is in control or question how much control he actually has. And that can lead us to question whether our efforts are, are even worthwhile. If anything that we do really matters. But let's see what we can learn from Esther. In the end, Esther's human courage and faithfulness were necessary. They were necessary to bring Haman to justice. She devised a bold and crafty plan and she executed that plan with strength and faith. Yet Esther's courage and faithfulness are not what ultimately saved her people from annihilation. Remember, as Paul pointed out last week, the story ultimately hinges upon the king having a sleepless night. So hear this. The decisive event had nothing to do with Esther or Mordecai. They could repent and fast and pray and resolve to bear witness, but ultimately it was the sovereign hand of God at work gently guiding this story and every story, all of our stories, toward a fitting end. So ultimately, so ultimately it depends on God, but it also does depend on us. Those things Those things are not mutually exclusive. Psalm 127, verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The Lord is ultimately the one building the house, but he uses builders to build it. God's work and our work do not battle like foes. They dance like a couple. 
Can God build a house by himself? Yes, of course. I think a prerequisite for joining Acts 29 years ago was to acknowledge that God didn't need us to build his church. But consider the garden, consider the ark, consider the tabernacle, the temple, the body of Christ. For thousands of years, God has demonstrated a preference for inviting us to join him in the process of building. Under the surface, that's what the book of Esther is teaching us. Do you want to see your friends and family come to know Jesus? Pray for them. Reflect upon their deepest spiritual needs. Look for and ask for opportunities to share the gospel in thoughtful and targeted ways, clever ways. God is ultimately in control, but he wants you to join him. He wants us to join him. Do you want a better marriage? Don't sit back and wait for your spouse to change. <laughs> Seek to be a better spouse. Pray, love, serve, engage, repent. Take your thoughts and your actions seriously. God is ultimately in control, but he is inviting you. He is asking you to join him. Do you want to see the children you love grow up strong in the Lord? The children you teach, the children you know in your parishes, the children you know in your families, your children. Well, then talk to them. Know, know them. Take them seriously as Jesus did, as Jesus does. Teach them what you know. Invite them into conversation. Pray with them. Invite them to pray. God is ultimately in control, but he is inviting you to join him. Do you want to remedy a social problem? Feed the homeless, free the captives, foster a child, support a family, support families that foster children. Start a nonprofit, run for school board or, or the city council. God is ultimately in control, but he is inviting you to join him. Do you want to see the kingdom come in the heights? Open your home to your neighbors. Invite them to your table and into your life. Share your life with them. Share a meal with them. Know their stories. Know their lives. Be interested in them. I can't... During a time when people are so separated, wouldn't it be easy for all of us to start thinking and feeling so lonely what would, it, what would it mean for you, for us, to, be, to start being really interested in other people? Gosh, I want to know more about you. Tell me, tell me stories. Tell me what your life is like. Find ways to serve them and bless them. God is ultimately in control, but he is inviting you to join him. I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. These, these ways that we build, these ways that we join God in the work is about joining him and it's also about who we are becoming. 
in a world that seems to only spin, we are becoming a type of people in that spinning as we show hospitality and generosity to our friends and neighbors at our tables. We are becoming a type of people when we slow down enough to take people's needs seriously. It's what our king does even as the world spins madly on. Jesus has won the victory, but he is calling upon you. He's calling upon us to apply this victory, to live out of this victory. The decisive moment happened 2,000 years ago, and we have been building since, and there's still work to be done. And we are not alone in that work. That's what we're going to see next week as the story continues. For Esther and Mordecai, there is still work to be done. If you'll notice in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7, verse 10 says this. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. The wrath of the king abated. King Ahasuerus' anger subsided. And if you think about that, it's actually very bad news for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people. The wrath of the king abated. The reason that's bad is because they still actually need the wrath of the king to have its full sway. Haman is dead, but his genocidal decree is still on the books. Haman is dead, but his decree to kill the Jews still lives. The serpent has been crushed, but the world is still covered in darkness. Esther and Mordecai are going to have to find a way to undo the decree and to deliver the people of God from the persisting forces of evil. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for, Lord, this, the book of Esther. Lord, teach us. Teach us what it's like. Teach us how to live in a world that increasingly opposes you as people who are hospitable and kind, wise, patient, faithful, Lord, even as the world looks like it's spinning, may we be people who don't forget the small and, and just incredibly effectual kindnesses of conversation and sharing and invitation and, and speaking personally with one another. We're listening to stories. Lord, responding to the needs of our neighbors and to one another. Pray that you would make our parishes places of light, places of welcoming with large tables with plenty of chairs and chairs waiting to be filled by the people who need to be there. Lord, you're about to invite us to your table. We want to invite people to our table. Lord, help us to be these kinds of people in such a difficult time 
like for most of us, again, <laughs> during the times of our lives where we feel even maybe the most busy, the most stretched, the most unsure, the most questioning, Lord, may we not abandon the work of building with you. You will ultimately do it, and our faithfulness matters. Help us. Help us, we pray. We ask it in your name. Amen. Mm-hmm.